in the name of God, who is love. Amen. I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a man named Henry Box Brown. Henry Brown was born in 1815 or 1860 into enslavement on a plantation called Hermitage in Louisa County, Virginia. At the age of 15, Henry was sent to work in a tobacco plant where he labored for about 19 years. And during those years of enslaved labor, he also harbored a dream. He nurtured a dream for freedom within him. And then at the age of 34, with the help of a freed black man and a white sympathetic shoemaker named Samuel Smith, Henry put a plan into action that would deliver him ultimately to freedom. He took $86, the equivalent of about $3,000 today, gave it to Samuel Smith, and had a box constructed. It was a wooden box lined with a coarse cloth, had a single hole for air punched into the top, and the words, handle with care this way up, printed on the side. Samuel Smith was able to locate a courier service, a shipping service known for its expedition and its discretion, and then Henry Brown climbed into that box and mailed himself to freedom. Into that box, he took a little bit of water and a couple biscuits, and for 37 hours, he traveled by wagon, railroad, steamboat, wagon again, railroad, ferry, railroad, and finally delivery wagon until he found himself in Pennsylvania, a liberated man. To get out of work on March 29, 1949, and able to ship himself to freedom, Henry burned his hand to the bone with sulfuric acid. And when the box was opened and Henry found himself emancipated, this is what he said. He recounts in his autobiography, if you have never been deprived of your liberty as I was, you cannot realize the power of that hope of freedom, that hope of freedom, which was to me indeed an anchor to the, to the soul, both sure and steadfast. That hope of freedom is what sustained Henry. He saw far off through the eye of his imagination some new possibility, some future not yet reality that he was enabled to practice and ultimately enact in the context of his own life. I discovered this story about Henry Box Brown in a book by a poet named Roger Reeves, who was here for our Wonder Poetry Festival about a month ago and then spoke at Campfire. Roger is absolutely brilliant. He is going to win a MacArthur Fellowship one day. I'm absolutely certain of it. And he's a poet at the University of Texas. And in this project, he explores what he describes as black joy and ecstasy as a form of protest and a mode of resistance. He asks himself, what if emancipation, true liberation, never comes, from black, never comes, comes for black folks? 
and for other subjugated individuals. In the realities of systemic racism and prejudice that we're still navigating imperfectly as a culture, how do black people perform joy in a subversive way in the midst of it? Henry Box Brown is an example, a parable, about the power of the imagination to imagine a new possibility and way of being and to bring it into the present tense. And this isn't a sermon about slavery or systemic racism, but it's a sermon about the imagination, about our capacities as human beings in the midst of the various things that enslave us to imagine a new possibility that we then put into action as reality. It's, um, it's a way of thinking about what the great theologian Jimmy Bartz would call living into the future present tense of the kingdom of heaven. And in Jesus' parables, such as the one that we're given today, we see an invitation to think in a very new way about what reality and life as human beings might consist of. What it might mean to imagine a new reality of love and liberation and then bring it into embodiment within our midst. So every three years, when the, the, the readings for Sunday services come around, we get this set, it's usually in the summer, of three weeks of Jesus' parables. The parables are his favorite mode of teaching, and I think from like a literary critical genre perspective, they're absolutely brilliant. What Jesus does is he takes like very familiar elements, like very simple things that his listeners would have had all sorts of contextual appreciation for, mustard seeds, yeast leavened into dough, or, or wheat, wheat and weeds growing in a field. And then he uses them as sort of an emblem for something mystical. This material reality somehow points to a more spiritual reality that we're invited to contemplate and, and live into. And what he does, it's so brilliant, he always starts with story. He captivates our imaginations and then leads us in until there's a twist, there's a turn, and we're surprised into insight. So next week, we'll hear these more robust stories, these parables about the kingdom of heaven, where the kingdom of heaven, when the idea for it is planted in our hearts, it's like a mustard seed that's tiny upon first glance, the smallest seed of the field, but it grows into this gigantic tree in the branches of which birds can nest. Or it's like a little particle of yeast that's, wove, that's kneaded and woven into a lump of dough so it leavens the whole lump. Today, we're given another parable of the kingdom of heaven, and it's a little bit, um, it's sort of simple to decipher on the literal level, and then it gets a little complex when Jesus sort of explains the secret meaning to his disciples. So we're told the story of a landowner who's got this field of wheat, and someone comes in, they say an enemy comes in, and sows weeds in along with the wheat. This slave comes to this master and asks him what we should do. How do we enhance the productivity of this field? Should we just go ahead and, and rip up those weeds right now? And the master says, no, 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 no. Because those root structures are all intertwined. If you pull up the weeds, you're going to pull up the good plants as well. Let them continue to grow. And at the end of the day, when all the harvest is ready, we'll sort it out and separate the good from the bad. 
when Jesus' disciples ask him about the meaning of this parable, he kind of goes a little cosmic on us, like a little apocalyptic. Um, He says that this is a parable about sort of what's going to happen at the end of days. The good and the bad are going to be separated, and there are angels and an enemy. There's the devil. And I just kind of want to put that cosmic stuff to the side for the sake of this sermon, because I think this parable um, actually speaks some brilliant wisdom into our lives when we try to kind of reckon with the fact that we have the good and the bad always within us and always around us. I don't know about you, but I know that oftentimes, sometimes in the space of a single minute or moment, I can feel like I have the capacity for enormous generosity and compassion, and I can also harbor cynicism and judgment for myself and others. There's so much beauty in our lives, so much to celebrate and give thanks for, and there are also all sorts of realities of pain and fear and oppression that we're all constantly navigating. So what do we make of this? I think there are two primary ways that we as individuals and communities can work to sort of cultivate the goodness that's hoping to blossom within us and sort of minimize or maybe eradicate the bad, even though they're all ultimately interwoven. I think of these as sort of both operating on a vertical, personal axis and then on a horizontal, communal one. So first for the vertical, a couple weeks ago in the 8 o'clock sermon, I preached about how uh, I kind of contrasted the way my two-year-old daughter, Helen, wakes up in the morning and the way that I do. When Helen wakes up, as the first light leaks into her nursery in the morning, her, her face just blossoms into a smile. She's pointing at the window saying, birds, trees, everything's discovery, everything's awe and wonder. When I wake up in the morning, before first light leaks into the bedroom, the first thing that I tend to feel is low-grade anxiety and angst. I think about all of the obligations and commitments, the stressors that I'm going to have to tend to over the course of the day, and I feel something like despair. Luckily, I've developed a habit and a practice of doing a little prayer and meditation that helps me sort of recalibrate my heart toward hope pretty early. And reflecting on that practice this week in light of this parable, I was realizing that what I'm really trying to do in that moment of prayer and meditation is come to the end of myself as quickly as I can. To come to the end of my own sense of responsibility, authority, or power. I'm not a member of the recovery community, but I think about this in terms of sort of the wisdom of the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, acknowledging our sense of powerlessness, that there are certain things that we can't just bootstrap our way through or try to accomplish through sheer willpower alone. And for me, that's a liberating invitation. When I sit there and realize that in light of all these stressors I'm contemplating, I can't just grind through and accomplish it on my own, I start to look outward, open my heart, and just ask for help. Sometimes I feel like that's what my entire prayer life distills down into, just saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Come in and help pull out whatever weeds are sort of threatening to overwhelm this garden of my heart and being. 
Jesus says that an enemy has sown these seeds. And I don't know that I have many enemies in life, but I do know what it's like to sort of turn against myself. Jesus says that the enemy in this parable is the devil. And I don't know if I believe in actual embodied evil that's out there warring against the good and against us as individuals in some sort of personed way. But I do know what it's like to feel under attack by sort of these cultural forces of negativity and fear, comparison, and, um, and a lack of being enough that I internalize and let take root within me. I always find it fascinating that if you look at the Hebrew language, the word Satan means accuser. And I certainly know what it feels like to, to be lacerated by that voice of inner accusation telling me that I'm not doing enough, not earning enough, not working hard enough, that I'm not enough to be worthy of love, acceptance, and belonging. And those are the type of weeds, those lies of shame that need to be eradicated. Some of you have probably heard the distinction that social scientists like Brene Brown make around guilt and shame, that guilt is the sense I've done something wrong, and shame is the sense that I am something wrong. And I feel like when I sit down, crisscross applesauce on the floor to say those prayers first thing in the morning, what I'm asking God to do is to rip out those weeds of shame, telling me that I'm not enough, that I am wrong, and to remind myself that we, all of us, are beautiful creatures, beloved children of God, made in God's image. So that's kind of the vertical access, this turning outward and asking for help. Secondly, I think that that eradication process of those voices of shame and self-doubt, they happen in community. And the church is a particularly amazing place to practice this sort of collective gardening on a psycho-spiritual level. What I want you to do is to take a second and just look around. Look around at the people in the pews around you. Do you recognize most of the faces that you see? Do you know these individuals, these people who have gathered together with you to worship? I expect that for some of us, we recognize many friends or perhaps coworkers and acquaintances in the congregation on any given Sunday morning. And for some of us, the only time we really see one another is when we gather for this act of worship. And I think that's one of the most astonishing phenomena about the church is that gathered in this pew, in these pews, are people representing a variety of political perspectives, of, of different spiritual and religious ways of thinking and interpreting scripture. And yet we're all here out of a sense of solidarity around the fact that what unites us is far more important than what divides us. We're here to help those wheats, those, those, those good fruits bear, um, bear more abundance for one another. And in conversation with one another, we can be these voices of encouragement and perhaps accountability, helping one another tear those weeds of shame and self-doubt out so that something more beautiful can blossom. In this, uh, in this book I mentioned by Roger Reeves called Dark Days that comes out next month, it's absolutely amazing. He also tells another story. He tells a story about going to the Prado Museum in Madrid and seeing the work of a French surrealist painter. 
And he, he talks about how beautiful these paintings are, how he's very moved. Um, they're wonderfully executed and convey a sense of truth. But then he describes getting to the end of the exhibition and reading a commentary that was put up there by a Caribbean poet named Ame Césaire. And Ame Césaire, in describing the work of this painter, says he addresses himself only to freedom. He addresses himself only to freedom. I don't know what it would be like to experience the sort of chattel slavery that Henry Box Brown was born into. I don't know what it is to move through this world as a person, a non-white person who's trying to navigate a variety of systemic issues, but I do know what it's like to still be enslaved to some degree by my self-interest, by my fear, by those voices of self-doubt that I'm trying so hard to eradicate. And the invitation to address ourselves only to freedom is the, is the wisdom that the parables seek to convey. That we seek to live into this, this hope that some reality of love and liberation for all people will come into existence if we can practice it in our little acts of kindness and of love. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's almost never talking about some future post-mortem existence that's kind of relegated to the afterlife. For Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of heaven, this reality or reign of God is happening here and now. And it constitutes um, a, a vision of the world when every single person is liberated and experiences love, acceptance, and belonging. And we don't even have to go as far back in history as the Civil War or even look to the Bible to see parables of the kingdom at work in the world around us. I want to give you a couple examples of parables of the kingdom that I've noticed recently here in this community. A few months back, when we hosted this Wonder Festival, we brought a number of poets in who were black, LGBTQ plus, um, LGBTQ plus identifying. And these poets reached out to me before coming to town to say, you know, Travis, we love you and we trust you, but coming from places like DC and LA, we just feel a little bit, ner a little bit nervous about what actually uh, landing on a plane in Wyoming is gonna feel like. I assured them that they would encounter a very warm, loving, welcome, celebratory community here in Jackson at St. John's. But those were sort of idle words until I picked them up at the airport, were driving up cash, and the first thing they see is pride banners displayed by the city of Jackson in and around our town square. And regardless of um, what sort of views one might hold around human sexuality or, um, or, or uh, matrimony rights, um, these poets experienced a sense of assurance, a sense of welcome and love and belonging. Whatever voices of doubt or trepidation they may have been experiencing upon coming to Jackson were eradicated and love, hope, welcome blossomed in their hearts. And of course, that sense of inclusivity only amplified when they stepped onto this church campus. Last week, we were doing a middle school service project week in collaboration with the Presbyterian Church here in town. 
And on a down day, we decided to take the e-bike ice cream uh, carts out. And we're driving around visiting these different camps. And as cool as that was to see all these different kids getting a treat out on ice cream, the most memorable moment of the entire day for me is whenever we would pass a construction site, and these exuberant, rambunctious little middle school boys would call out, free ice cream. Who wants some free ice cream? These laborers who'd been working under the hot sun, framing houses or busting up concrete, would saunter up to the ice cream bikes and start to pull their wallets out. We'd say, no, 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 no. You don't have to pay for anything. This ice cream's free. It's just a gift for you. And you could see on their faces that sort of like default way, that transactional way of moving through the world, thinking everything's pay to play. All of that evolved, all of that dissolved. And they were able to experience this like beautiful reality of connection and generosity just in that moment of exchange. Last week, I asked um, Lonnie Brown, who's holding it down back in our production booth and runs browsing by, to, to, um, to tell me a story again that I had first heard when I came to St. John's for my interview. And it was this story about um, the time a car got donated to browsing by by a couple who were leaving town, a car in good working order, and Lonnie was left with this wonderful problem of trying to figure out what to do with this perfectly good vehicle. So he contacted some local nonprofits and put together sort of um, a review process to see which individuals were most in need of receiving the gift of this car. And he identified a single mother living in Alpine with two small kids who was taking the, the start bus in and out of Jackson a couple hours each day to get her kids sorted with daycare and then to work her job. Lonnie got to call this woman to meet her to hand over the keys to this new vehicle and sign over the title for $1. She wrote him letters for years and years afterwards expressing her gratitude for how this vehicle had changed the way that she and her family were able to live their life and enjoy time together. But the most beautiful detail of the story for me is the fact that when um, this woman was given word that she'd received this call, this car, she called the nonprofit and said, there's got to be a catch. <laughs> this is too good to be true. I mean, how would I be worthy of such a generous gift? That gift gets given, and one of those, those weeds of self-doubt is pulled out, and a new possibility for love and connection blossoms. And every Sunday, y'all, when we gather here to approach the altar, to receive the gift of God's love and the bread and the wine, we all of us could be carrying such a variety of doubts, of worries, of fears, of heaviness on our heart. But there's this beautiful miracle and truth that gets embodied every week for us. That no matter what we've done or left undone, no matter how loud those voices of self-accusation may be in our head, no matter how we may feel that our heart is ensnared with that self-doubt, that sense of shame, God's love is always here to embrace us as a reminder that we, were, that we are very good in our origin, that each and every one of us is deserving of love, acceptance, and belonging, not by virtue of what we do, but just of, as who we are. 
So in this season, as we contemplate the parables in Scripture and in our own life, like Henry Box Brown, like each and every one of you love spreading difference makers, let us address ourselves only to freedom so that that future possibility, that, that already not yet reality of love and liberation may be brought into reality through us, through this community, and all we do and say and are. Amen.